Escape Pod 232 December 31st, 2009 Today's stories Alloy by Marisa Lincoln Fire by Kyle Diaz and My Grandfather's River by Brenda Cooper Hello and welcome to Escape Pod I'm Steve Ely It's New Year's Eve a traditionally transitional time a time for reflecting on losses and joys, a time for resolutions that you're skeptical about even when you make them, and a time to stay up and go to parties with people you didn't see enough the year before and hope to see more of the next year. We're doing something different this week, a bit of housekeeping, a bit of looking back. We've been working through our back flash inventory, but in the midst of catch-up on everything else, it's been hard to get flash stories out as bonuses like we've intended. We're taking a page from other great story podcasts, like the Drabblecast and Pseudopod, and we're presenting three Flash pieces this week, with themes that seem appropriate for looking back. Our first story is Alloy, by Marissa Lingen, another angle on a very traditional SF idea. Ms. Lingen is a freelance writer who lives in Minnesota with two large men and one small dog. Hey, that's the one-sentence biography on our website, which starts out with, quote, I've sold enough short stories at this point that I have a standard one-sentence biography. And she really has. She sold dozens of shorts to markets from Asimov's to Bayon's Universe to Nature. For some reason, even though they're doing it regularly these days, I still tend to feel a slight sense of awe when I see that an SF writer has sold to Nature. This story first appeared there in September 2007. The story is read for us by the fabulously named Electra Allenton, an American living in Japan where she teaches English in the JET program. So unbox your presents and be ready to do some assembly. It's story time. Part 1 of 3. Alloy by Marissa Lingen Humans have told my story for centuries. The artificial woman. Flowers, flesh, or metal, my body fascinates. It is lush and unyielding, vibrant and sterile. No one thinks of making an ugly woman from scratch. We have too many of the old-fashioned kind, I suppose, but the same is true of men, and Frankenstein's monster is no cover model. If I had been ugly, there would have been less trouble. But if I had been ugly, my maker would have taken out my bones and started again. My maker was always practical. In the stories... The creator made the artificial woman for himself. My maker dreamed bigger. You'll change the world, he told me, when I was too young to really converse. You'll make everything different. How? I asked. He squeezed my shoulder. By being you. I resolved to learn to be me quickly, to please my maker and to make things different. That sounded exciting. I was, as I said, very young then. The hardest thing, he told me, was making me fool animals. Dogs were the key. A politician without a dog was running a risk. It was an easy way to humanize them, the poll said. That sort of thing makes me laugh. He spent months training me when to laugh, when to chuckle politely, when to smile with my whole face, when to merely peel my lips back. What a carburetor was. 
the difference between a change purse and a dime bag. Real humans knew trillions of tiny details. I cultivated a reserved, sheltered personality for camouflage. My maker gave me doe-like eyes and a willowy frame to further this impression. He always thought of things like that. He wrangled an invitation to a congressman's fundraising barbecue, a man who'd surely win his party's presidential nomination. We went together, the scientist and his adopted daughter. I gave the congressman a special smile when we shook hands, and I did not put myself forward. I spent the evening listening to his mother talk about azaleas. We were invited back for dinner. I wore black pearls glowing against my bronze skin, traditional and modern. When someone asked my ethnicity, I smiled shyly and said, American, I guess, just as I'd been taught. The congressman's smile reached his eyes. He found excuses to talk to me all evening. Soon, we were engaged. I lived in an apartment nearby, far enough to preserve decorum, close enough that we could be together always. I went to his fundraisers, his town hall meetings, his intimate chats with moneyed friends. I learned to play cribbage with his father and understand the racing cars his brother loved. I smiled shyly for the cameras when they caught us walking hand in hand down tree-lined lanes. I learned about trade deficits, disease-resistant crops, copyright protests, prison reform. In the stories, women like me say that they do not know how to love, and then someone comes along and teaches them. This did not happen. I did not fall in love with my congressman. Worse, I liked him. This made my maker's plan to destroy him problematic. My kind were supposed to be jerky dolls, bits of plastic and metal. We were not supposed to be seamless blends. We were not supposed to fit into their families. We were not supposed to fit into their beds, not without shame and mockery. And there I was. I did not like being a time bomb. By the time I found out, I wasn't sure what I could do to stop it. One day, a cyberneticist came to the congressman's office. He had won an award. The staff took photos. Hometown boy, making nice. They liked each other, though I couldn't tell if the cyberneticist had voted for him. Usually I could tell that sort of thing. There was a bigger problem. The cyberneticist knew what I was. He began to invite himself to the congressman's fundraisers. He watched me in the garden, serving lemonade to the party functionaries. He kept an eye on me at the school event, reading to children. He knew. One day, he cornered me. Did you think I'd let this go? Let what go? I said, feigning a pretty confusion. If you think I'll let you follow him into the White House to do 
Whatever it is you want to do, you're wrong. I don't know what you mean, I said. He shook his head in disgust. I sent a message through the path I'd been given, not untraceable, but hard to trace. It said, Someone knows. He will tell the press. The reply came back, Good. I don't want this, I wrote. The reply, Follow the plan. All will be well. I destroyed it automatically. That was part of the plan, but angrily, which was not. How could he say all would be well? He had not gotten to know the congressman. He knew only his politics. He did not know mine. I disappeared without a trace. No one ever knew who I was. No one ever knew who made me. The congressman announced his candidacy that morning. He also announced a reward for any information leading to his fiancée. He intended to cooperate fully with the police in their investigation. Those words never bode well for an election. I went home to my maker and locked him in the basement. I feed him. Someday I'll even let him out, when he's ready to hear me, when I am not his property anymore, when he can think clearly again, if that ever happens. And that was our first story. I guess in some ways this was a happy piece. Young woman grows, discovers herself, becomes fully her own person, and then comes back home to take care of her father. Non-consensually, granted. But every family has its quirks. Our next story is a shorter, more poignant piece. We present Flair by Kyle Diaz. Mr. Diaz lives in New York with a recent film degree from NYU. He has a lot of great music reviews on his site, fitfulmurmurs.com. This is his first fiction sale. I will warn you, the story's a bit of a downer. If you don't want to have tears jerked from you, you might want to skip ahead about three minutes. Otherwise, find a dim corner and a bright friend. It's story time. Two out of three. Flair by Kyle Diaz I was the kind of boy who always stood evenly on my feet. She was the kind of girl who always nibbled on the ends of her pens. She'd have made a great smoker if she hadn't been brought up so well. She was beautiful. We were sixteen. We got off to a clumsy start. This would prove to be a theme in my life. But we adjusted quickly to this new thing, to the sudden mingling of our lives and activities. We kissed often, and happily, and in a variety of inappropriate but suitably dim places. We talked for hours. I can't imagine what about, but I remember being interested. And when we had problems, we talked about them in hushed voices and felt very mature, and we delighted in our troubles and in ourselves. When she told me she was going on the colony ship to Titan, I was devastated. But what about us? I said. But she just looked down. I felt sick. It's a big opportunity for my dad, she said. You think I want to go? I don't. Then don't, I said. Stay here with me. I can't, she said. And, of course, she was right. After she had gone, I fell into the habit of sneaking out late at night. If there were no clouds, and the lights from the neighbors weren't too bright, the ship was easy to find. 
Sometimes I would bring my binoculars, fix them on that dot of light in the sky, think about her out there in the darkness. Where are you? I would whisper. Come here. I miss you. I was one of the few, then, who actually saw the explosion. One moment the ship looked as it always did, and then there was a pulse, so bright that it hurt my eyes. I cried out and dropped the binoculars. I knelt, fumbling in the darkness, cursing, then found them and brought them back up to my face. The ship was gone. I searched the sky, frantic, but there was nothing. I screamed and threw the binoculars from me, turned and ran toward the house. I had to call someone, tell them what had happened. I had to help her. But a part of me knew that there was nothing anyone could do to help her. The explosion was already six minutes in the past. It was only the flare that existed for us to see. It took some time for the official explanation to emerge. A freak accident, they said. A softball-sized bit of flotsam that hit the fuel tank just so. It didn't much matter to me. When I left the house at night now, I didn't have to sneak out. My parents let me have the run of the place now. They think it will help the healing process. I don't know about that. But still, I leave the house at night and stand under the stars. I fix my eyes on a spot of blackness, where once there was a spot of light. And I whisper, come here. I miss you. And that was our second story. It's the sincerity of this piece that really captures me, I think. It takes me back to my first high school romance. We'd be on the phone, too, for hours, making up silly topics to debate, like whether circles were better than squares, or what color standard tennis balls really are. They're green, by the way. I will swear that up and down. You people who say they're yellow must be on a different electromagnetic spectrum. Anyway, that was the saddest point. Our third story is not a laugher, but comes tinged with a bit more hope. We present My Grandfather's River by Brenda Cooper. Ms. Cooper lives in Washington State and has several novels out through Tor Books, including Building Harlequin's Moon in collaboration with Larry Niven and her latest, Wings of Creation, which was just released in November. She also has dozens of short story sales. This one was first published also in Nature in August 2006. The story is read for us by Anna Ely, a research chemist and violin player living in my house. I love you, sweetie. Happy New Year. So double-click on The Sims version 20.0. It's our final story time. My Grandfather's River by Brenda Cooper I begin to make the river. The river. His river. The one my grandfather took me down the year I turned 10, and again the years of 16 and 25. It takes days to dig through web archives for his data, to find old versions of the 2D geographic information software he'd used 20 years ago. Success allows me to form the data into 3D, to show the banks shift and the water fall away, to chart the demise of trees and animals. It is not enough. Sitting straight in my chair, feet on the ground, back arched, stretching my wrist, I am tempted to give up and send a history bot and make a simple album of Grandpa's speeches. Except his own words are no gift back to him, especially since they didn't work. He spent six years fighting to save the river, and then ten more wandering up and down it, steadying his failure. Our last trip, when I was 25 and he was 70, we sat in his red canoe in the middle of the river. 
A dead fish floated past us. Why do you stay? I asked. I need to save it. I eyed the white underbelly of the dead fish, but held my silence. He looked away from me, his voice breaking. I'm mapping it for you. I can't save the real river, but I can save the record of it. He pointed at a cloud of tiny cameras he'd set to follow us. Bright sun sparkled on them like diamonds. I have recreated the river from that trip. I need the river of my youth, the one from our first trip. I find a program bot that takes the old photographs from his first National Geographic article and take two more days off work to scan, register, and rectify the thin, bright photos to his old 2D and make sure the cattails are exactly the right number of inches across and that some bunch up close, hugging, and others wave above the water like brown flags. I tell the pixelated water to rise up a little, watching carefully as depressions in the banks fill into tiny spangled wetlands. Olfactory data bots yield pond water and cedar and frogs and mix them all up on command. I add throaty frog conversations, hoping sensory stew will drive my little girl memories forward. I collapse on the couch, the river surrounding me, washing me. I cause stars of water spiders to scoot on bright drops of surface tension and feed them digital mayflies. Virtual water laps at a finger I hold a few inches in front of my face. The water spiders glide and dance around it. Finally, I slip into my child self and the memory of his voice is clear and strong as if the river washed away the 40 years between then and now. They never look like they're walking. Walking would be too slow for them. I recall his hand on my shoulder as I gazed up into his intense blue-green eyes. He surveys the current, keeping us away from white water frothing over rocks. This man, who is always gentle with me, digs his fingers into my shoulder. The sun beats on his thinning blonde hair as he lets go. It makes such a sweeping gesture the canoe under us rocks alarmingly. Penny, this is your heritage. We're stealing it from you. Memorize it, Penny. Memorize the water flowing always downstream. The clean, rounded rocks. The water spiders. Even the memory of his voice drives up details. I add them one by one. Three turtles balancing on a floating log. The ghostly feel of a warm wind. A heron pretending to be a cattail. The monitoring nano in my blood screams sleep at me, and I can't override it anymore without a doctor's chip. It's okay. I'm done. I collapse, sleeping for two days and a night, dreaming of turtles and herons and dragonflies. The morning of my grandfather's birthday, I bring the river in my top pocket. The relentless sun beats the dry brown grass on his bit of lawn. He waits for me in an old wooden Adirondack chair, his eyes bright blue pools in a river of wrinkles from temple to temple. He smiles and stands and holds me, his arms shaking a little. I suddenly hate it that he is a hundred today. 
Glancing down, I note his nanomonitor is yellow again this morning. At least it isn't blinking an alarm. Inside, a big white fan cools the kitchen, and there is no evidence he's eaten breakfast. He flips a switch and sits down, sighing in pleasure as the scent of brewing coffee puffs into the air, a history of morning's past. I stand behind him, kneading his shoulders, my throat tight. I slide the glasses out of my pocket and slip them over his head. His voice belongs to an old man. What's this? My own voice shakes. Look. The glasses sense him and spring to life. Even though I can't see it, I know the river surrounds him. It runs over his ankles. Cattails grace the corner by the refrigerator. He grips his knee and a breath rushes from him. VR glasses are for an old man. I turn my retinas to vert. Reality grazed to background. My senses catch up with the river programming just in time to be with him as the three turtles come into view in the empty doorframe. He squeezes my palm hard. I return the real world to my eyes. A tear is falling down his cheek. And those were our stories. I have less to say about that last one, because it makes me want to talk about the environment, and I don't feel like I'm informed enough to say anything that won't make me look stupid later. What I like about this piece is that it brings it all down to a personal level. One individual place, one individual person, and one present. They say you can't go home again. They say you can't drink from the same river twice. What we can do is remember. And remembering is nearly always an act of good. Hey, one kind of sort of feedback bit here. It seems like a few people remember our Christmas special last week and had an issue with the audio quality for the first half of the reading. Responses varied from, yeah, it seemed a little murky there, to overt hostility and anger. I want to apologize for the sound issues. The whole episode was put together very much at the last minute. We got the story from Murd not much more than a week before Christmas. I got the sound file from Al on Wednesday. And there was a volume issue in the first part that I knew we wouldn't have time to turn around and fix. So I did my best with it, but didn't give it the final listen-in-the-car test that I should have. In any case, it was unacceptable. Alistair's offered to do a reread for us, and one way or another, we will post a new and remastered version of that episode soon. I want to thank everyone who brought it to our attention, and I apologize. Most of you were very pleasant and supportive about it. You have a right to be disappointed, and a right to complain. But, folks... I have to say this, too. Some of you were assholes. Some of you sounded like we'd ruined Christmas for you, or vomited in your figgy pudding. Telling us when we screwed up is one thing, but all of us here are doing our best, and we did make some sacrifices to bring you two Escape Pod episodes in two days. In particular, I will not tolerate heat against Al, who's gone above and beyond for us more than once, and who did this for us on very little notice. We're going to fix this. I'm sorry for the bad experience. But if it makes you mad... Please, chill out. We are just a free audio program. In general, just chill. Life's too short to be an asshole. Okay. On a positive note, here's a promo for a podcast novel coming out uh, about now from a member of the Escape Artist family. For Agent Cyrus, the world's first cyborg, 
The mission should have been simple. You deploy, secure the hotel, take them into custody, and extract. But when a routine snatch and grab goes wrong... Confirmed. Hostile jumped nine stories and is fleeing. Do not engage, Hostile. I repeat, do not engage. Cyrus finds herself at the center of a conspiracy that threatens the very foundation of her existence. Your critical biological systems are dependent on the implants. If they die, either from the virus or your own immune system rejecting them, my biological systems won't be able to function. Now, with time running against her, Cyrus finds herself in the crosshairs of a conspiracy set to destroy her. (laughs) You think that because you have his name, you've cracked this case? You haven't scratched the surface. Even if you dig, you won't live long enough to see it through. You have no idea where this goes. Cybrosis, the debut podcast novel by P.C. Herring. Coming to you on 010110 from www.cybrosisnovel.com. Paul Herring's been our treasurer for years now, doing a much better job than I ever did of making sure people get paid. And he's a kick-ass author. This is a really fun cyberpunk novel, and I don't just say that because Anna and I both have some cameo roles, or because launching on a binary date is just really damn cool. You can find it at cybrosisnovel.com, so go check it out. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors, who can combine Voltron-like to make a giant super author when copyright is infringed. If you like this week's stories, please tell a friend or blog about us. Or if you can, we hope you'll consider donating via the PayPal link at our site, escapepod.org. We also hope you'll check out our sister podcasts, Pseudopod and Podcastle, at their .org domains. I thought last week's Pseudopod story, Bofufatswana, was a really strong story with a great perspective on real South African history. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from late newspaper columnist Bill Vaughn, who said, An optimist stays up until midnight to see the new year in. A pessimist stays up to make sure the old year leaves. We'll see you in 2010, the year we make contact. Until then, have fun. <laughs>